Well, good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to our current favorite epistle, Colossians. While you're finding that in your Bibles, and I trust that you do have your Bible with you, you're at church, that's the purpose and a bit of the point. Just want to encourage those who are being are involved in Vacation Bible School to begin to prayerfully prepare yourself for that great endeavor. We spent some time this morning in Sunday school looking at Spurgeon's uh, little book entitled Come Ye Children, which has been uh, a great encouragement to me as I've gone back and reread it and looked at it, and I trust it will be to you as well as you take the time to study it. Those of you who are preparing to teach and Consider the great honor and privilege that God has given to you to open up God's Word to these young minds. It's a great honor and privilege that the Lord provides us with that occasion. Um, And Spurgeon's mindset was that the kingdom of God is primarily made up of children, and we'll be considering some of that next week, but if you consider the fact that um, Spurgeon held the position, as do I, that those who die in infancy are immediately with the Lord by His grace, Um, whether they be of a Buddhist or a cannibal or of other religions, um, they are with and in the presence of the Lord. And if you think of all the millions of kids who have been aborted, heaven is full of children. And that's a wonderful thought. And God is merciful, I believe, in that way. Um, And I, I, I don't believe that any type of baptism is necessary for that to take place or I believe that to be the case, whether it be a miscarriage or a stillbirth or whatever it is, heaven is full of all of these children. Um, And that's a wonderful thought, I think, and a comforting thought. And so it's a great opportunity for us at Community Bible Church to have this occasion to communicate the gospel to these young minds. And I trust that you'll be prepared to do so um, and have your lessons ready. Uh, not looking at them at the night before, but getting them ready during the course of the week and being familiar with them, the passages, the texts, and praying in advance that the Lord will open the hearts and minds of these young children to hear the Word and that He would save them. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word, and that is your task as this time approaches, to give them the Word and to point them to Christ. Well, before we get into Colossians chapter 3 this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll consider the passage before us in verse 12. Lord, we love you. Thank you again for this time to be with you. We pray that you would bless us and keep us, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to receive and understand your word today. We thank you for this occasion. We thank you for the great privilege and, and opportunity that you've so graciously given to us to begin our week here assembled together as the redeemed of Christ, um, to hear the word of God proclaimed. I pray that these words would go forth with the power and unction of the Holy Spirit and Uh, We are promised in your word that they do not go out void or misdirected, so we we entrust this ministry to your spirit today. We ask, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would change us, that you would mold us, form us, renew us, as Paul talks about, into the image of Christ each and every day, each and every moment, making us more and more like our Savior, reflecting His holiness and His glory in our daily lives. We thank you, Lord, for the doctrine of election. We thank you for the power of it and the beauty of it and the love that it demonstrates and how you chose for yourself a people that would be set apart and that we would live for you to be identified um, in terms of our knowing you and being known by you. Thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, forgive us for our sins, forgive us for not loving you as we ought and for allowing our minds and our lives to wander into areas that they ought not to be in. Keep us, we pray, preserve us, um, and uh, help us to see your hand in all these things that are unfolding before us. Bless Vacation Bible School. uh, Bless those who are preparing for it. Bless the teachers. Bless the kids. Bring the kids to us, Lord, and may, through their spirit, uh, you call them to yourself, we pray. And we ask that you would Keep us this morning as we study your word and help us to understand it. Give us clarity. You ask, you tell us that if we want wisdom, we to ask for it. And so we ask for your wisdom this morning as we study your word. We pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, Colossians chapter 3, of course, has been a familiar passage to us now for some time, and we continue to work through it. We are making progress um, incrementally, but that's okay. We've got nowhere else to go. And so we're going to enjoy what the Lord has so graciously provided to us in this beautiful epistle. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, let's read. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you." Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So what we understand from our passage so far in verse 12 is that we have been chosen by God for holiness. He saved us for a purpose. He uses the doctrine of election here in verse 12 to help us to understand the fact that God has set us apart based upon His sovereign act in choosing for Himself a people that would be identifiable as His people by the way they ultimately live, living in holiness. God is holy, and as we know, we are being renewed into the image of God and Christ. In verse 10, we see that that image is being renewed continuously. We're being pressed if you will, into the image of Christ. And as we mature in the faith, these evidences ought to be more demonstrative. It doesn't mean necessarily that we don't have times in our lives when we struggle with sin. We know that to be the case. Romans chapter 7 is the normative Christian life, if you will. But at the same time, there is an expectation that we are going to grow in our faith. Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, that we are to add and to increase our faith by the demonstration of certain virtues. And indeed, Peter would even go on to say that one who does not do that needs to begin to question whether or not they are indeed the elect of God. That's, Paul, that's Peter's predicate in the context of that presentation that he makes in that chapter. And so it's important for us to be mindful of the fact that these evidences that we're going to begin to look at today, these five virtues followed by love, Paul uses that same motif of five and one as he did in in verses five and eight of chapter three, to present to us the opposites of those things that he teased out in the beginning portions of chapter three. These evidences of holiness are a product of our election. God saves people to transform them. There is no such thing in the Bible as a carnal Christian. And the teaching of that doctrine by so many has been a great disservice to the church because it's allowed people to think that they can just live in their sin in a, in a context in which there is no consequence and that their life in sin is just something that kind of happens sometimes. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do they sin big? Yes. Go back and look at the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a list of great sinners, is it not? There's not a person in that list who wasn't known by some context by their sin, Samson, David, Moses, Abraham, I mean, all of them had some issue that was significant, yet they were called saints, they're called holy ones, and their life demonstrates a movement forward in the demonstration of the reality of God's election and choosing of them. And so the doctrine of election is important. And it's important because it gives us assurance, it gives us hope, and it gives us comfort. Paul would also say that we're holy and that we're beloved. Before the foundation of the world, God loved us. Those whom He foreknew, prognosco, foreloved, He then proceeds to sanctify, justify, glorify. And so we understand then that the doctrine of election gives us a firm foundation upon which we then base the conduct in which we engage. We're not doing it to become more saved. You can't be any more saved than you were the moment God saved you. There is no future justification. There is no future salvation. All of that is given to you at the moment of your salvation. And so we then live in confidence in that context 
understanding what God has done for me then allows me to move forward in holiness. I have been chosen for that purpose. Delightfully, I serve him. I live for him. And when I fail, he gives to me a great advocate in Jesus Christ, who is my high priest, making intercession for me, and whose life is what has merited my salvation. That's important for us to remember. And so for Paul, it's significant that he then proceeds with an exhortation. He gives us an imperative. And the maxim that we need to understand and that we need to consider is that the gospel imperatives are possible precisely because of gospel grace. And so we've got a lot of indicatives. Verse 12 begins with a big indicative about the doctrines of election and who we are and this picture of the church being the spiritual Israel and that in the context of that dynamic, we then live out what God intended for his people to be. We are the salt and light of the world. We are the ones who would stand in contrast to the wickedness of the age. We are the ones who make a proclamation that Christ is indeed the Savior and the King. And so knowing that, we move forward then into this behavior, resting not upon the faithfulness in our our actions, but rather in the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ, which motivates me then to do these things. So Paul says to me in verse 12, what? Put on. And there's that language again, that that tailoring clothing metaphor that Paul reminds us of, of the fact that he's saying to you, live in the new clothes that God has given to you. Live in your new holy attire that God has given to you. And this holy attire bears itself out by our conduct. It it changes us. This new image, this image that's being pressed upon us, moves us into a different dynamic of behavior. This is what Paul is doing. And so this this expected um, identification or Paul's identification of the church Um, as the continuation of the true Israel is borne out by the fact that we then live out the context of that holiness as God would have intended. The expected lifestyle that comes first in focus, as we see, is a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And as we'll see, um, while kindness and humility are relatively self-evident, Compassion refers to concern about someone else's bad circumstances, and we're going to develop these ideas. Gentleness expresses the humble quality of consideration for people and not thinking that one is more important than others. And patience alludes to being forbearing in the face of provocation. This stands in stark contrast to the world, does it not? As we're chosen for holiness, the holiness is demonstrated primarily in how we interact with each other. This is especially important within the church, and it's of particular importance as we engage with the world. And Paul wants these people to understand this. And of course, this stands in a stark contrast to what the false teacher is giving them. He's giving them the types of ideas and things that promote um, pride the adherence to rules, do not touch, do not taste. Oh, I didn't touch it this week. I didn't taste it this week. Did you? You know, the guy checking you at the door, criticizing you, measuring you in that context. That's that type of legalism that the false teacher was promoting. Paul is not teaching any form of legalism here whatsoever. Indeed, this is liberty. This is freedom in Christ. And as we are free in Christ, we then willingly and lovingly engage in these behaviors that are indeed significant. And so we'll see that as we move out of verse 12, Paul begins to then focus in verse 13 on the issue of love and how love then knits all these qualities together and ought to be the identifying mark of our unity in Christ and amongst each other. We are unified in Christ in love. He loved us, we love each other. And that's perpetuated by the exhibit of these virtues in our lives amongst each other. As I've said repeatedly over the past several weeks, it's a great shame that the church is known by its turmoil rather than by its love. It's known by its internal conflict rather than its its amicable, loving treatment of each other. How many of you have heard people say, and I know that you have, I'm not going to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. I'm not going to go to church because all they do is fight. This has become the mark of the church. 
And it's a sad indictment indeed. What's interesting, too, is we'll see that these attributes, as we began to note last week, are attributable either to God or Christ in the New Testament, showing further that the good behavior of the Colossians is necessary because it is to mirror the behavior of God and their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose image they have been created. And this notion is implicit from the wider context of Colossians, which says that believers are what? Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. Let's consider for a moment as we begin to move into these imperatives what the foundation is, Paul even praying about these things. Look at verse 11. Strengthen, go back to verse 10. Let's go back to verse 9. Let's just pick up the whole context. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, now here we go, here we go, the, the, the reason for praying that way, and this is a great lesson to the church, the reason that we pray that way and that we pray for each other that way is so that as we have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done, it changes the way that we live. Paul says in verse 10, so that you will walk Walking is a metaphor in the Bible for the way you live, the way of life, so that you will live your life, if you will, in a manner worthy of the Lord. This goes back then to the idea of what Paul communicates in verse 12 about our election. Our worthiness is tied into all of that. And it ought to be a life that demonstrates the fact that you've been placed in Jesus Christ and that you're living your life in a way that is worthy of what he has done. This is what Paul is saying. For what purpose? To please him in every way, is what that means in all respects. Bearing fruit, okay, here's these imperatives, in every good work, and what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're going to grow. We're going to grow in holiness. We're going to grow in our love for each other. And as we do that, these evidences, these virtues ought to become more pronounced and more predominant in our lives. This should be a desire that we have. It should be our heart's intention to pursue Christ in that way because we love Him. Yes, we rest in His finished work. Yes, we are We are complete in Him. He has taken the burden away. He has assumed that obligation. His obedience is now my obedience. And out of love for Him, I move forward in the context of what Paul is saying here, as he does in verse 11, bearing in mind that I'm doing this in this context, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might. God saves us and He empowers us by His Holy Spirit. Peter would say that we're partakers of the divine nature. He's speaking to that dynamite resurrecting power that brought Christ out of the tomb. That's what we have, to live in holiness through Him. This should be a great encouragement to you. Now, now what's what significant to me is that Paul here is not looking for um, experiences that then motivate us. To live. Isn't that interesting? What motivates me to live in holiness is not a repeated exposure to multiple levels of experience that are emotionally driven, but rather based upon the doctrine of God's Word that then gives me insight into what it is that God did in my salvation, who I was when he saved me. Don't forget, in verse 21, he reminds us that we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. And so my motivation for him is not getting words of knowledge, not having emotional experiences, not looking for certain movements by the Spirit in the context of demonstrations of grandiose things, but rather my Life being illuminated by God's Word through the work of the Spirit who shows me the doctrine contained in God's Word, gives me understanding for it, and that then motivates me to live for Him. 
This is incredibly important for us to understand. So we understand that the reason that Paul then calls us to this holiness is because we are believing in the context of being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of Christ. So the origin or basis of, the sta- of, of our strength is Christ's own glorious might. This is Paul's point. And so just as Christ is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient towards us, so are the believers towards each other. And this is the image that Paul has in mind as we begin to unpackage these imperatives that we're going to find pretty much in the balance of this epistle. And he begins here importantly with these virtues, because keep in mind, now we're going to get into some passages beginning in chapter 3, verse 18, that are going to deal with the family, with marriages. So as we think about that, and as I'm preparing for my 15-message series on verse 18, (laughs) keep in mind that the basis for the strong relationship between the husband and the wife and with our children and with our employers and others is based upon these evidences, these virtues being established in our life. It's the found, there's their foundations. They're helpful in that way. You're not going to have a good marriage if you're not going to be what you're called to be here. Have a heart of compassion, not being kind or humble or gentle or patient. Those, that's the basis for any strong, loving marriage. And so we'll see how Paul builds on these things as we move forward in that context. So what we see then is this. We have here five graces that Paul calls our attention to. We have this wonderful fountain of grace, if you will, that he's given to us at the beginning. So I want you to think about this for a minute. We've, we've seen fountains before. And, and even, you, even you kids out there, you've seen fountains. You've seen big fountains where there's water gushing up and it's flowing out and it's wonderful. Well, this is a fountain of grace. God's grace is just gushing out of this wonderful fountain. And it's, it's filling up the area. And so it's from this, it's from this great fountain of grace that we then put on these five graces. All right? That's important for us to be mindful of. Now, we understand that in, in um, the, the preceding verses, chap, in, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 8, that he listed five things to put off in verse 5 and verse 8. And he maintains that same type of, of, of symmetry, if you will, or, or argument by calling for five virtues to be put on. So we had put off, right? Put off those things in verse 5 and verse 8. And we, we've talked about those at length. We're not going to go back and do that again. And now we're going to put something on. And the reason that we put off and put on is because we have been recreated. We have been given the new clothes. We have been clothed in them, robed in them by the Holy Spirit through the process of regeneration. And so now, Paul says, put them on. Live in them is what he's saying, if you will. And as we see that there's going to be, you know, there in the preceding verses, Paul kind of uses this five-one motif. So there's kind of six vices and virtues in each case. It's kind of a five plus one configuration that he uses because we'll see that here in verse 12 and 13. He goes into love in verse 13, so you add that then, and that kind of consumes all of those things like he did with the vices that were described in verses five and eight. And so here we have this picture of a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and love. And so we see that Paul is calling us to a lifestyle that is certainly different and distinct from what we once were in that of the world. And so we understand that however we categorize them, these virtues stand in contrast to those things that are socially destructive and are part and parcel of the destruction that we be attendant with engaging in the vices in verses 5 and 8. And these qualities then bring about a unity 
in the midst of diversity that characterizes the body of Christ. So think about this for a minute. This is really good. So, so it's interesting to me that in the, in the context of where the church is today with social justice and critical race theory and wokeness, that, that these ideas have been abandoned and substituted with things that actually create division. Rather than having a heart of compassion for a person who is a racist, let's say that's the case. We then categorize that person, and because of that designation, we hate them. We're going to punish them. If they're white, they have privilege, therefore, even within the church, they ought to be ostracized. They ought to be criticized. They ought to be rebuked. They ought to be challenged in some context. Yet that flies in the face of the gospel transformation of which Paul expects and is praying for. Wouldn't it be remarkable if rather than engaging in social justice and critical race theory and wokeness, that all those people embracing those ideas went back to Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, and began to pray for people that way, as opposed to continuing to create the very barriers that are creating division within the church. This is why I'm having such significant problems with this issue in the church and seeing so many embracing it, and it's getting worse and worse as time passes. The gospel is being abandoned. We're creating division where we're called to unity here. Ultimately, one could say, where is the love? They're forgetting that there are some significant issues. I love my neighbor as myself, and if he's not my neighbor, he's my enemy, and I have to love him too. So this, in, in the midst of a diverse body of believers, now let's not forget this, back in verse 11, I understand that to be the case in Colossae, do I not? Apparently, this is the dynamic in Colossae. Jews and Gentiles, free and bond, Scythian, barbarian, Greeks, You've got a whole hodgepodge of people. You've got the United Nations apparently living in Colossae. And what does Paul say? Forget about all of that. Get along with each other in unity and demonstrate these virtues to each other and how you treat each other. That's significant. No one asking for reparations. No one asking anyone to take a knee. No one asking us to march and do certain flag-waving events in order to make a point. No. Live in the context of who you are. You were chosen for holiness. And so we find then that the basis for all of this, all of these qualities, as I have noted, are found first in Christ. Compassion. Christ is compassionate. Is He not compassionate? There's never been a more compassionate person. He was recognized by his compassion. He was known for his compassion. He was gentle in that way. We'll speak more to that in a moment. That's one of his designations as well. He was kind. We know that from Scripture. We know that to be demonstrated and to be true of him in the gospel accounts of his life. He was very kind to people. He was humble. We're told that in the book of Hebrews, and we're told that elsewhere throughout Scripture. He was known to be gentle as well and patient. And there are myriads of verses that we could go back and look at. And what we also, also understand when we look at this passage, not only were they characteristics of Jesus Christ Himself, but they are indeed the fruits of the Spirit, are they not? And, the, and, and for the most part, three of the five, as we will see, kindness, gentleness, and patience, are specifically listed as fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And they're also among these virtues. That would only make sense if God had chosen to save you, that the spirit in which now indwells you, you would demonstrate these things. And what's interesting, too, is that Paul uses kind of an alternating back and forth emphasis from one inward virtue to an outward evidence that grows from it to another inward virtue, to another outward expression of that inward transformation. He goes back and forth like that. We're going to see that in a moment. So let's look, first of all, to what Paul says here in the middle of verse 12. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, comma, put on a heart of compassion. 
So the verse grace to be put on is a heart of compassion. And the first word of this phrase, heart of compassion, is important. When it's used literally, it refers to one's bowels or the inward parts located in the belly. This is why the King James Version says bowels of mercy as opposed to a heart of compassion. Metaphorically, however, it referred to the seat of one's deepest emotions and for that reason is often rendered in English as heart. And we've talked about that, that the word heart in Scripture typically refers to one's, the seat of one's emotions, where things come from. There's some, I think, mystery attached to that. It's heart and head. It's, it's kind of the inner being of who we are. And of course, as God saves us, He changes that about us. And so Paul is saying now from, from out of this new heart, this heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, but from out of this new heart, demonstrate these types of mercies, these types of attitudes and behaviors as it relates to your interaction with other people. Now keep in, keep in mind that these virtues are relational in nature. These virtues teach us how we live with each other, how we get along with each other. These ought to be the things that are the most evident about us in the context of our regeneration. We ought to be known by these things rather than the vices that are listed in verses 5 and 8. Immorality, anger, lying, things of that nature. Those are not the things that ought to be the marker. Do they happen in our lives? Absolutely. Do we struggle with them? absolutely. How do we resolve them? We go to Christ and remember that he never did any of those things. And we pray for God's guidance and help and assistance through his spirit to continue to move forward. Going back to Colossians chapter 1, I'm continuing to pray in the context of what Paul did there. Lord, give me better understanding. Give me better wisdom. Help me to love you more. Help me to understand that I'm operating within your power and I move forward. That's what we're called to do. And so this is what Paul is setting up for us here. So the second word in this phrase, heart of compassion, is compassion. And this is a word that's described as a motivating emotion, such as pity, mercy, and compassion itself. So moving out from this inward disposition that I now have, the other graces are enumerated and given to us. It would make sense then that out of a sense of pity or mercy or compassion out of this heart, I'm then going to be what? I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be gentle, and I'm going to be patient, and I'm going to love as well. So Christians often want things to do. Everybody wants a list. You got a list, all right? but use the list biblically. So the next word that we see in this passage is what? Kindness. Kindness. It refers to, the word that Paul uses here is a word that is often used to describe or refer to goodness, kindness, and generosity, neither of men or of God. It's used in both contexts. What we know is this, though. Naturally, man has no such kindness in himself, does he? No, absolutely not. That's not something that comes naturally to us. We know that from what we find in um, the, the Scripture, in particular Galatians chapter 5. Paul teases that issue out in the context of those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. And so this kindness then is the outward expression of the heart of compassion, right? If, if I'm having that sense, if I'm motivated in that context of, of having a changed heart, and if this motivation ought to demonstrate itself, then in what way? In kindness. In kindness. Generosity. Goodness. Being, um, I guess in a way you could say, if it speaks to the idea of goodness, treating people um, with, with a sense of propriety and fairness, um, to be engaged with people um, in a in a, in a generous way. That's what it means to be kind. Someone does something nice to you, and you say, well, that was very kind of you. I appreciate that. That was, you had me over for dinner. That was very kind of you. That was a generous thing to do. 
That kindness, that act, that, that, that type of thing is not natural to man. That kindness comes from God's inner transformation of your heart. Now, can the unregenerate engage in some form of those things? Yes, but ultimately what we understand is that our motivations are different. Our connection to this kindness is now coming out of a true heart as opposed to a heart that might be motivated by something else. And so this is important for us to keep in mind. Now, friends, I'm not saying these words to you just so you can hear them. I'm expecting as Paul would expect the Colossian believers, that you're going to live in this way. These are not mere suggestions, okay? This is not just a list of things that look and sound good, right? Now, now listen, I want this to be very clear. Paul is clearly saying to us that a Christian has a heart of compassion, okay? A Christian has a heart of compassion. A Christian that does not have a heart of compassion is not a Christian. All right? If you're known to be a short-fused person who's quick to claim your own, who's going to shoot first and ask questions later, who's going to cut the person's head off, there's a problem. And I would submit to you that there have been far too many quote-unquote Christians left in the church who are like that, without ever being challenged, without ever being confronted about it. That is sin. Those things, keep in mind, are the product of anger, are they not? They're the product of those things that were identified back in the earlier verses that are associated with the unregenerate. Now, this does not mean that a Christian cannot engage in these behaviors in in some way, but they ought not to be the pattern of your life. You, Christian, have a heart of compassion. That's what God gave you when he saved you. Isn't that wonderful? And so that generates what I do. One of the things that it automatically generates then is what? Kindness. And so out of your heart of compassion, you are kind to other people. Next, Paul talks about humility. And this, again, is an inward virtue. So we're going to see, as I noted, this in-out, inward, outward thing that Paul's going to do with these particular virtues. Heart of compassion, inward, outward expression, kindness. Next word, humble, humility, inward. And what's it going to do? It's going to demonstrate itself how? In gentleness. It's interesting how this works. So look what happens. We have humility. This is an inward virtue. The word is generally used in a positive sense, as it is here, to describe a quality of voluntary submission and unselfishness. Oops. Oh, pastor, can we skip this word? (laughs) Yeah, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, if my husband could only get that one right, I tell you. No, this is important. You ought not to be proud of your humility. That's not a good thing. (laughs) If you look in the mirror each day and think that you're becoming more humble, then you've got a pride problem, not a humble problem. So it's a quality of voluntary... Now listen to the language. Oh man, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Listen to this. now, Now remember what I said. We're talking about virtues that lay the foundation for, a, for, for the, what Paul will begin to talk about, about the family, all right? So, now, now listen, listen. The Scripture has clear categories as it relates to the proper role of men and women in their relationship with each other. The same can be said of the church. I, as a shepherd of Christ, I am under Christ, and I am required to submit to him. That's, that's what we're called to do as shepherds. The same is true in the family. God has created an order, all right? So I'm going to lay the foundation right now for verse 18. So you need to remember it. In the context of what Paul calls wives to do, he's anticipating that this quality of humility will serve as the basis for an understanding 
of the idea of submission called for in verse 18. Okay? That's important. Because we understand that it's a quality of voluntary submission and unselfishness, humility, even to the point of self-effacement. That's, now, we've got to get our... Now, listen to me. You've got to begin to detach yourself from the secularist model that says to you to embrace yourself, categorize yourself in the motif that they have presented of you being your own person. You are not your own. Newsflash. You belong to God. If you're here today and you claim Jesus Christ as Savior, you don't belong to you. You don't embrace your inner self. You don't want that in the context of what they mean by that phrase. You belong to Christ. And Christ has an order and a system established both for his church and for the home. The home is a creation of God. A marriage is created by God, ordained at the very beginning of time. And there is an order to it that's important that you need to recognize and understand. And it begins by beginning to comprehend these types of virtues. There is nothing demeaning about this. And ultimately, too, we're all called to be in this context of voluntary submission to each other in some way. This is what Paul is saying. It's interesting that the word humility here is used by Paul in two different ways. If you recall back in Colossians chapter 2.18 and verse 23 as well, there was a form of humility being offered by the false teacher that was the wrong type of humility. Go back and look at that. He says in verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement or this false humility. This is not what we're talking about. So we understand then that there's a, there's, a, there's a right form of humility and a wrong form of humility. Verse 23 does the same thing. These are matters which have to be sure of the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement. That again, that, word is, that root word is the same as the word we're using here for humility. It's not the right kind. And we see that it had no effect to be productive for anything. And so for Paul, he wants to make certain that you're understanding. Don't don't buy into the false teacher's form of this false humility, this idea of self-abasement that wasn't appropriate, this misguided practice. Here Paul has in view the possibility of a right, godly, spirit-produced practice of humility. Humility. Now this is not easy to do. These are not, so far, we've dealt with some things that are challenging. All of us ought to be kind of checking ourselves as we're going through the list. Where am I? Do I have a heart of compassion? Am I known to be a kind person? Am I truly humble? Do I act in humility? Again, don't don't be glossing the words. Paul expects, as does the Holy Spirit, that as you read, God's Word is profitable, for instruction, correction. Maybe there's some correction that's needed, both in terms of how you relate with other people and how you relate with those within your own home and within the church. So Paul uses this word, and it's an important word. And so we see that this idea that this, this enables us to deal with, deal with others then in gentleness is the next word that Paul uses. This humility enables us to deal with others in gentleness. It points to a humble and gentle attitude which bears up under offenses with patient submissiveness and without a move toward revenge. This gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit's work in an individual's life. Paul even uses this word in other passages in regard to confrontation or even discipline or in general instructions about avoiding difficulties in relationships. This word is often used to set as the opposite of harsh, divisive, defiant, brusque attitudes and actions. It speaks of humility, courtesy, considerateness, meekness, in the sense not of weakness, but of power under control. We understand from the Beatitudes that, Paul, that Christ would even speak of that as something being evident in the Christian's life. 
Blessed are the gentle. Gentle does not mean effeminate. Gentle does not mean to be emasculated. Gentle does not mean to be abused. It means that you're under control. I work with horses, and I take a young horse, and he's got a lot of power. And the process of bringing that horse to a point of being able to be ridden is referred to as gentling the horse. What am I doing? Am I changing him from a horse to something else? Am I trying to make him act like a cat? No, I want him to be a horse. I hate cats. Someday I'll have to tell you a story about me and my dad and cats, but I'll save that for another time. It might split the church, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, I don't want my nice three-year-old quarter horse colt to act like a cat or a golden retriever or to turn him into something that God didn't design him to be. But what I do want him to be is under control. No one likes to be around a horse that's not under control. If you've been around any kind of animal like that, you know that you can get hurt. You know that you can be very difficult. No one likes a horse that's not under control. I like my horses to be very gentle, but I want them to be a horse. I want them to spin. I want them to stop. When I say, whoa, I mean, whoa. I want him to yield the leg pressure. I want him to have a soft mouth. I want to, I want to be able to open a gate off his back, rope a cow, drag a log, cross a creek, get on a trailer, ride down the road, not feeling like I'm going to get killed every time I get on them. That's to be gentled. And so, that's what Paul's talking about here. It's power under control. Now, that horse has a lot of power. There are times I want him to use all that power. I'll kick him up. I'll, I'll move him forward. I'll get, I'll get on him. I'll say, get up. Move out. And off we go. But that's still power under control. We're not called to be wimps and whiners and babies. We've got too many people like that. But at the same time, we don't wear our emotions on our sleeves, lashing out, beating people up the instant we're offended. This is a gigantic problem in the church. It's been the bane of our existence. We have not been predominantly known to be gentle people. We tend to eat our own, like tigers. Why is that? Well, it's because we haven't the predicate for it. A heart of compassion hasn't been worked on. We haven't been been tending that garden, so to speak. We haven't been kind. We're not humble. And we're lashing out, claiming our own all the time. This destroys homes. Dads, you need to remember this in the context of how you discipline your kids. You know, we're going to get there. You're not a brute. You're not killing your kids. You're not beating them to death. But there is a gentle way, power under control, to deal rightly with your kids. That can include firm discipline. That includes spanking. By the way, we're going to talk about that. So might as well just gird up your loins, folks. Because Paul's going to be talking about a lot of things. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do those things. A dad can lovingly and gently discipline his kids, even if it's a means of spanking or a firm form of discipline in that way. This also goes to how you treat your wife, men. I was going to say wives, but I thought, well, I better check myself there. (laughs) Don't want too many now. One. So we'll see how that all plays out. So you see then, we then have the final word, patience. This is often used to refer to uh, both human and divine patience. And patience, as with the other graces, is produced in us only by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And the word here generally refers to a long-suffering endurance in the face of indignities and injuries by others. Interesting. And thus we see the three inward virtues that deal with the whole of our lives, a heart of compassion, how we view others in their circumstances, humility, our orientation towards self, and patience, how we deal with difficult circumstances and the people who become caught up in them with us. And each will have its outward evidences. A heart of compassion becomes kindness, humility acts in gentleness, and patience is going to evidence itself in the two actions that then are set before us in verse 13. 
as we will find out next week. Well, I trust that this practical list of imperatives has been an encouragement to you, and I hope, I hope that it is. Um, again, friends, listen to me. I, I don't expect you to look at this and just say, okay, great, I got, I, that's good. No, you've got to look at this and know that God is communicating this to you today to work in your lives. What, ha, what is happening right now is you are being renewed, according to verse 10, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created you. That's what's happening. So you're being changed right now. The Holy Spirit is working in you right now. If you're listening, if you're hearing, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. Your faith is being built up. Out of that strong faith comes these virtues. Take heed, pay attention, and listen. And I get in the context of my final word to you this morning is we get to be reminded of the fact that we are redeemed by one who was always a, had a heart of compassion, always kind, always humble, always gentle, and always patient and loved us beyond measure. That's the beauty of it. And we live in the context of the reality of what he was and is for us. I trust that you know him. I, I hope that you know that you can turn to him, look to him, call upon him, and he will surely save you. If you don't know him today, if you've been faking it till you make it, hoping by, against all hope that someday you're just going to get in because God's just going to be friends with you. It's not going to work that way. So take heed right now. Listen to me. Your faith has to be in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time in your word. Uh, we, we can find these passages challenging, but we understand that these type of gospel commands are supplanted and built upon gospel grace. And we rest in the fact that you are equipping us and, and empowering us to do these things for your glory and for your honor. Give us a true heart to do these things, Lord. Help us to live in these things in a real way. And may these types of virtues and ideas permeate the body of Christ. May we be known by our gentle virtues and our kindness and our humbleness and our hearts of compassion rather than other things that so often mar the church. Forgive us for the times that we have fallen into the snares and the traps and the sin of not living this way. Help us to look to Christ and to rest in his finished work lovingly, obedient to him because of all that he has done. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.